We live in chaos, Michael. <laughs> yeah. Michael, you have created chaos. I think we're doing great. Um, <laughs> okay. So for those of you who are new to the Uloft podcast, my name is Michael Bond, and I am sitting across two tables from <laughs> Kendall Kersey and Ashley Bennett. What's up? Hey, yo. It's and Ashley's first time on the podcast, Michael. It is, yeah. First of many, hopefully. So well, um, It's going great. Yeah, as chaotic as the first part is. By the way, just to let you in behind the scenes, we just cut out nine minutes <laughs> of absolute trash audio. So trash. <laughs> so yeah. you're welcome. And, and it was mostly trash because of the words we were saying and the thoughts we were articulating. <laughs> well, it is audio, so Not that so would much be... Enough. Also because you couldn't keep your fingers off of those dials over there. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so anyway, we've solved all of that, <laughs> and so we're back into it. Uh, today on the Uloft podcast, we are discussing a book by Judah Smith called Jesus Is, and if you've seen this book, you'll see on the title, it's actually uh, Jesus Is Blank, and so then I think the endeavor is to fill in the blank with um, different words that are characteristic of the nature of Christ, which is what Judah Smith tries to do throughout the work. That is the endeavor, indeed. And mm-hmm. uh, The whole endeavor. Yeah. We've so set sail. why are we reading this book, Kendall? <laughs> so, so the reason why we're reading this book is because um, we've changed everything that we've done with United this semester and probably for this whole year. Um, we're actually doing a service, a Unite, every fourth week of the month during the college semesters and in between, so the rest of the weeks of the month, we are doing small groups. Um, and that's something that we've done before, but we've never done it around a specific book. And we decided to go around the book Jesus Is. And so some of you guys have maybe already met and already had a discussion over the first week, and some of you guys maybe haven't. And um, really what we wanna do here on this podcast is just have more of a, uh, more of like an umbrella discussion, I guess in general, kind of um, just talking about the entirety of the sermon I might preach during that month or the videos you might watch or the book that uh, the chapters you might have already read. And uh, like Michael said, endeavor uh, set sail to try to fill in this blank of Jesus is what, what is Jesus? So Yeah, that's actually a very dangerous journey. Many people get that wrong and then you end up with bumper stickers that say things. Like- well, so... When they open this up, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I don't know if you're going to give a good joke or a bad joke, so I just cut you off anyways. That was um, kind of the end of it for me. That was the end oh, okay. of the joke. It was fully was done. So it was no joke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the Jesus is my co-pilot. Yeah, How about that's, that one? Yeah, that's I hate that one. one. <laughs> if, you have that on, if you have that on your car, please rip that off. And if your mom has it on your car... Wait, your mom has it on your car? Like, your mom's I mean, your like, mom has you it on. This? Yeah, your mom has it on her car. Jesus, Jesus take that is off. your co-pilot. She slaps it on there for you. Exactly. Je- Jesus is my groupie. Is another Ooh. bad one. What Ew. did you just say? What is that? Do you no. have that bumper okay. sticker? Tom, no. <laughs> Please no. Or t-shirt. <laughs> okay, so... Awful. Anyways, uh, I was listening back um, to Judah Smith talk about this, and they actually started like a website. I don't think it's still up. It might be. I'm not sure. Um, but I think it was like jesuses.org or something. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Dot gov. Yeah, dot gov, um, dot edu. Uh, so he set it up, and they actually allowed people to fill in the blank like on their own. And, um, which is kind of risky, honestly. Yeah. He said that, you know, they got some really good ones and they got some ones that were just comical or ones that were absolutely blasphemous. Uh, Mm -hmm. which I mean, you open yourself up to that whenever you, you just say fill in the blank, however you 
however you believe. Yeah. Kind of if you're trying to take a survey of people to see where you need to meet them at, like just how bad is your theology? Because what's the conversation between you and me going to look like if you are not only it, you're not only not at square one, but you're at square negative 50. So there's going to be a lot of work to do just to unravel the problems that you have in your worldview before we can even start to make sense of things. Yeah. Do you think that would even be a good idea? Like, would you use this as almost like an evangelistic tool? Like to go up to someone and say, like, if you were to fill in this blank, how would you fill it in? No. Why not? I, well, I don't know. I guess you could. I, I prefer to do evangelism by way of works. Like, um, you know, mowing someone's lawn. Uh, oh. <laughs> what, what did it sound like? What, like <laughs> By way of works never sounds like a good thing. Oh. Yeah, well, like I'm going to work. You mean like serving people? Yeah. Okay, that like, makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Kendall's giving me this, inc- a look of incredulity. <laughs> um, but no, I do think like, so if, if, if you show someone that you're willing to care about them in a self-sacrificial way, that I think is exceptionally rare in a self-dominated culture and so then you stand out as different and then people want to know why you're different and then you can start telling them uh about jesus and you can even you know even if you're in a situation where you're talking about your story and like who you used to be and who you are now and how you've got things together most people want to be able to get things together even if they're not religious even if they're not um Christians or whatever, like they want to be able to get their life together. And if they think this Jesus thing will help them get their life together, um, then I think that that can be a good starting block. Yeah. But I think like, you know, you're saying that you want to start with works is fine. But if I think that you could still ask this question, I think this could be like a, for our listeners, I think this could be an opportunity to possibly talk to their peers about Jesus. Like it's an easier way, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially if you have some sort of idea, like, of who this person is, you have some sort of relationship with them, you can ask them like, hey, how would you fill in this blank? Like, and then they can tell you, they can tell you their thoughts on Jesus and then you have an opportunity to almost like have an apologetics moment and be able to use scripture of saying, okay, well this is like, not like dunk on them and be like, ah, you're wrong. Uh, Boom, here's these five scriptures, you idiot. Uh, Don't do that. But you have an opportunity then to have like actual conversation of, oh, that's interesting. Like what you're saying is interesting about how you view Jesus or maybe you don't, you can't even fill in the blank because you've never really thought about it or heard of, heard about Jesus. Um, and then you have an opportunity to actually share with them scripture instead of just kind of like randomly trying to throw it out there. Mm-hmm. Or forcing it on them. Cause I think it shows that you care about their experience and like what they've experienced in their own life. And then it's a conversation. It's not just you telling them. Yeah, that's a good point. It is generally a good idea to uh, make an effort to understand the person mm-hmm. who you're trying to form any kind of relationship with. Um, because if you if you display that you don't care enough about what they believe to understand what they believe, then you're going to sound like a salesman. Well, it's like... Yeah, so, one-sided never works, you know? Yeah, one time um, when I was... Uh, like a youth intern, like I was like 18, 19 or whatever. And we would go on. Uh, so long ago. <laughs> it was very long ago, actually. <laughs> Way too yeah, long ago. Before the internet. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the internet was around, but barely. We had AOL CDs. Just dial uh, up. And- <laughs> 
Shut up. <laughs> um, so uh, at this point, I think the name is, well, it was Kirk Cameron, right? Mr. Kirk Cameron on the street. Uh, and then I think Ray Comfort, is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. So they would always go out to like street of, have you ever heard of Ray Comfort? No. Nope. Okay. This dude is a khaki pleat wearing like Ooh. loafer dude with his button up shirt rolled up. And basically his whole point is like to go up to people and say, um, is anybody good? Like, do you consider yourself a good person? Hmm. And then he's like, okay, well, let me ask you a question. Have you lied? Have you stolen? Have you done this? Have you done that? Have you bought? And so basically his whole like shtick is to tell, show them how terrible they are and like how terrible it's we all start. are. <laughs> yeah. And then like, then share the gospel after that. And like he had videos and all this stuff. And like they used to use the crap out of these things. Like even in Bible school, like they used to show us these things and be like, this is a great way to evangelize. And I always hated it. Yeah, I don't like, love that. I couldn't stand yeah. it. And so I lived in a big city in Fort Worth, uh, in Texas, um, Texas Forever. And there was this Shameless guy, <laughs> there was this guy who would stand on the corner. I might have talked about it before that literally would like just point people out downtown and point people out and be like, ah, I see you smoking that cigarette. Like, I hope you like smoke because you're going to be inhaling that a lot when you're in hell. And like, <laughs> no, no lie. Like, this is who he was. And I remember having a conversation with this guy one time and it didn't really go that well. Um, I was also kind of being a punk about it too. But like, I had a conversation with him. I was like, don't you think like, it might be more helpful if you actually talk to these people and you didn't just shout at them and point, their, point your fingers at them. Like, we're having a conversation now and you're actually getting to talk to me. And if I was like totally screwed up, like you would be able to at least have a conversation that lasted more than 10 seconds with me and I don't, wouldn't write you off. Um, I said, but these other people, you're pointing your fingers and blah, blah, blah. So I think all that to say, like I think it is, it's, there's something to be said about like allowing someone to tell you what they think, even if they are incredibly wrong because it gives them the opportunity to feel, to make them feel like they are a part of the conversation. And so that's why I love this, like this strategy essentially of filling in the blank is because if someone's had a terrible experience with church or a terrible experience of what they've been taught about Jesus or whatever, and that, that can be inside or outside the church, then you have the opportunity to hear their story, to hear, you know, even like what they're passionate about in a sense about like what they might've been quote unquote traumatized with or hurt with or whatnot. And then you have an opportunity to respond directly to those issues instead of just this big umbrella of, well, you don't want to be a sinner, do you? You don't want to be a liar and a, a thief and a murderer, do you? Like you want to, you want to have a better life. Like then you actually get to speak directly to those issues. And I think that's why this is a big, could be a really big help. Yeah, if as an evangelist, people would rather run into the ticket lady than run into you, then uh, you're probably not doing it right. And so that's what I think about when I think about... The ticket lady? Oh, yeah. The, yeah. It's like if you see a street <laughs> preacher and you're just like, oh, God. And, <laughs> you know, and so instead you let yourself uh -huh. get a ticket because you don't want to walk past that guy. So you end up like going around an extra block and then... You oh, know, okay. you, oh, yeah. Then you're doing you it You see wrong. her too and you're like, oh, I got to get back to my car, but I don't want to go past that street preacher. And so then, yeah. <laughs> You've done this before, haven't you? It's probably happened. Uh, yeah, he I definitely know, did it. I've done it. <laughs> that's a good point. I feel like so often not always but so often it's not jesus people don't like it's just christians that they don't like yeah people suck they do like unfortunately nathan finocchio actually said one time he was talking about like church hurt um which if you don't follow nathan finocchio on instagram he is a fun follow uh he runs an account called the else memes too which is hilarious um <clears throat> but uh anyways he basically said like people who have a lot of church hurt like aren't hurt by the big c church 
in a sense like of Jesus's bride. They're hurt by the people that are in the mm-hmm. church. And so like people suck. And so he was trying to say like churches don't suck. The people in the churches suck really bad. And the people in the churches are still really broken and they don't really realize it. And so they end up breaking other people, but it's not the institution as the church that Jesus Christ set up. It is the people within the institution that are still just as broken as you are. They just don't want to admit it. So they Mm -hmm. end up hurting. Yeah. And that's going to be the case pretty much anywhere you go and you have people. I think that's one of the reasons why the best organizations are set up with um, systems that account for the corruption of man uh, rather than systems that attempt to prevent it from the outright. And, um, you know, it's certainly the case that people, bad people can take a church, what would, what should be the bride of Christ and turn it into the synagogue of Satan as revelation puts it. Um, and so, yeah, it, it does, uh, people make a huge impact. Uh, well, take for instance, like, okay. So in the first part of the Jesus's like discussion or whatever, it talks about, um, <clears throat> I think the first video too, uh, talks about the prodigal son and like, Part of his returning back to the father, um, like Are he. Are you a vacuum cleaner? Yeah, yeah. I just heard a vacuum cleaner. I think so. Oh, well, well, man, we'll push through. I it. was in the middle of an awesome segue, and you just <laughs> yeah. crushed. And just like, you just vacuum. pushed me right off. I literally was on. <laughs> yeah. Like, so I just you. had this idea in my mind. Like, I'm riding one of those old school segue things. And you just came up and kicked it, and then I just fell off. As soon off. as you started, I was like, "Oh man, this is a great segue he's making right now." But then that came, like the vacuum came on. Thank it, you. So. I appreciate that. Okay, let's get back on to the segue track. Prodigal and son. Yeah. The prodigal son. Part of him returning back to the father was him coming up with an idea of I'm gonna have this great speech and I'm going to go back to my dad. I'm going to tell him how uh, I am so lowly and I suck and I need to be a servant. And um, then maybe he will accept me. Like in his mind, he thought that his father was going to respond a certain way. And because he thought his father was going to respond a certain way, it made him react a certain way. Um, When in all actuality, the father completely um, react, well, he reacted completely differently than what the son had expected. But what I think is interesting in that, in the son's like reaction or his preparation rather, um, is that it's a human nature thing to like kind of project onto someone what they're going to think, how they're going to react to you um, being a screw up and how they're going to react to you being broken and how they're going to react to you smelling like pigs, if you will. Um, and because we come up with those narratives in our mind, we don't ever give anybody the opportunity to really show us who Jesus really is or fill in the blank because we've have all these uh, projections of this is, this is who, um, this is who they think I am. And so I'm not going to even be able to approach this person without making myself uh, look terrible. And I don't know how I'm going to really, you know, get my life together. I can't even go into a church because all these people are going to look at me and think this way. And yet the whole time you're basically building a barrier between filling in this blank, essentially, of seeing who who is Jesus really. Because yes, people suck in the church uh, sometimes, and it's difficult for them sometimes to show the love of Christ in the way that they should because they're human beings. But there's also another side of that where because you're a human being, you project these ideas onto a church or onto people in the church, and then you don't allow people who are really genuine to truly love you. No, no thoughts on that. Okay. <laughs> you just took a really deep breath. I'm I was ma- waiting for you to talk. But marinating in it. Marinating. I'm trying to, <clears throat> yeah, I, I do think that um, there's a cautionary tale in assuming that you know that someone, the way that someone's going to react to you because 
the way that you are able to build your bravery. So here's a rule. I'm just going to tell you this out front and you're not going to, most of you, many of you aren't going to believe me and that's going to illustrate the point. You're projecting how people are going to respond right now. It's human nature. Yeah, very much so. Um, Most people, most of the time are only ever thinking about themselves. And so they're not thinking about you. Um, I could stand on stage in front of hundreds of people and stick my foot in my mouth uh, I could s- just say the most astonishingly stupid thing that you've heard all week. Oh, and that I was picturing you physically yeah, putting your foot I didn't in know. your mouth. I saw that and I hate it. I hate every bit of <laughs> You're it. Like I was um, cringing so hard. No, it was a metaphor. But okay, uh, you can say something. <laughs> okay, you stupid. said something dumb. You just did it. it. Okay, so <laughs> you, you could do this in front of hundreds of people, and just days later, seventy-two hours later, almost all of them will have either forgotten what you said or they won't not, be thinking about it anymore. I would not have forgotten. I can guarantee you that. Right, but, w- but would you be thinking about it? Like if you're at the grocery store and you're trying to buy dinners, <laughs> yes, no, you I'm might kidding. be asking them. <laughs> I'm <yeah>. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I would text you about it and be like, remember when you did this? <laughs> <laughs> well, so they, they tell that to public speakers to kind of help them with nerves. Like, hey, mm-hmm. you, you could just make a total train wreck of this and it's not going to matter. Because even if you do a great job, it's still probably not going to matter. Yeah, yeah. Aren't no, going you're to totally remember. right. Yeah. And so, but the issue, that, like, what's weird is people don't believe that just by hearing you say that. Like, if you say that's a principle, that's a, that's a truth of the universe, um, they won't just accept that. And so, what you have to do is you have to live that principle out and try it. Um, and so, the way you would try it in this context is just see how people react to you instead of assuming how you, you that you know how they're going to react do the thing be brave enough to overcome the social anxiety or whatever it is and then watch how they react to you like have zero after, expectations you mean yeah and and so <laughs> as you repeatedly observe people reacting to you in a, a way that's different than the way that you thought they were going to this is really good for getting over shame actually mm-hmm. like if you have a sense of shame and you think, okay, well, I can't go to church because of these things that I did and I'm deeply ashamed of it. And so people are going to see the shame at like a scarlet letter on me and they're going to um, <clears throat> look at me differently than everybody else because of that. Um, if you just go anyway, go 10 times and watch the way that people are around you. And what you will see is that they're not treating you any different than they're treating anybody else because most of them don't care about your shame. They don't care about what you did. They don't have time to care. Um, there's a lot of life to be lived. There's a lot of, are like, you the meaning, world's dangerous. Okay, but are you meaning more on the, like, a larger spectrum of relationships? Not like your closest people. Because I think your closest people would care a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, about they care about but, you in general. Not necessarily about any specific uh, circumstance or thing that you're holding. But, like, just you in general. I think they care enough. They do, but not not compared to what how mm-hmm. they think about themselves or maybe like their kids or something. Mm-hmm. Like I think that uh, children and the self and these kinds of things tend to take up a lot of the bandwidth of caring about uh, about a, of a person's care. So there was actually an experiment done once where they showed a, a little girl in a poverty-stricken country and she's just standing there and covered in mud and nothing to eat and then they ask people to 
rate on a scale of one to 10, how much they cared about her, like what, like how much empathy they were feeling at that moment. And most of them said 10, most of them were like, you know, mm -hmm. definitely they, they want to help whatever way they can. But then when they show the little girl and her brother, the amount of care goes from 10 to eight. And then when they show the, the little girl and her brother and the community, it, it drops down to six. And then as it spreads out, how many of you have thought about Ukraine in the last week? unless you're using it for political points, mm -hmm. you know, like really, I mean, I know I haven't, that's an entire war torn country, but it's because it's an entire war torn country that it's too difficult for me to care about it. I can't care about every single person from Ukraine. There's not enough of me and there's too many of them. And so what I'm saying is that I think most of the time people are worried about the they're worried about the judgmental eyesight of people who just aren't looking at them. Yeah. They're, they're just not able to. Um, and so if you can start to step back and unbiasedly uh, observe the way that people are treating you and the, the places where you think they're going to be casting aspersions and see that they're not because they can't, because they don't have time, because they have their own stuff they got to take care of. And a lot of them, by the way, are probably also in their own head worried that you're doing the same thing to them because yeah. they have things that they're ashamed of. Mm -hmm. And so this is a truth that is true everywhere you go, but you won't be able to build it into your system until you actually see it happen to yourself. Just yeah. hearing me say it isn't good enough. So, but that's why I think that, <clears throat> or I mean, I think that's what's so cool about like how countercultural Jesus is then when you read the gospels right? Like in his interactions with people, I think the best, the, the best quote unquote interactions, essentially when Jesus is talking to people throughout the gospels is that he says things that they did not expect, like that, that weren't culturally acceptable or that weren't, um, you know, that weren't expected in any way. And I think the prodigal son is, is one of those ways too. I mean, the way that Jesus talks about the prodigal son is that the way the the way the father runs to the son is countercultural. Like that shouldn't happen. That shouldn't have been the case. Like men wouldn't have distinguished men, especially would not have picked up their robe and ran after their son after he disgraced them. And so like, I think when you, when you're going this exercise that you're talking about, I think when you observe how people react to you, I think genuine Jesus followers, people who really care about you, people who are full of the fruit of the spirit and they're really showing, um, well, they are really showing you who Jesus is in that moment, right? Like if they're countercultural essentially to what you would expect to be um, received as or how you would expect to be treated. And if that is also backed up by the fruit of the spirit and the gospels, I think you're seeing you're seeing that blank be filled in essentially. Like you're seeing Jesus be compassionate. You're seeing Jesus. I think about uh, John eight, when Jesus um, looked at the adulterous woman with compassion, like that's a, that's one of the coolest scriptures to me is like, he looked on her with compassion and then said, you know, where are your accusers? And this is something that no one expected him to do, but yet he did it. And it allowed him to show the human in front of him, the person in front of him, who he really was, that he was going to be different, that you that you can expect compassion and care and love and grace and mercy and um, from him. So I think when we talk about filling in the blank, and that's a huge thing to think about is that Jesus is completely countercultural to our expectations of, of how someone's gonna react to us. 
I mean, we put human expectations on Jesus, on God all the time. I think that's the problem, is that we expect that he's going to react the way that any human would react, you know, like with judgment or shock or whatever, that he's not going to run to you, you know? I think that's a big part of the problem. Yeah, the the story about the prodigal son, I mean, many people would say this, but it's, it is one of my favorite stories in mm-hmm. the Bible because of the complete difference of how the father reacted to the son and how the other son reacted to the son. Can you do son. a quick summary of it? I think we when we summarized it before, that was during our train was during our yeah, nine during minutes our of trash. Yeah. Yeah, so um, the the prodigal son, I'll use Wait, Michael's Michael version. Michael needs to do it. <laughs> yeah. Michael, Michael this, I'm gonna do an impression of Michael. So, <laughs> so imagine that you have all the money in the world and your dad has the inheritance for you and you leave to the big city. This is great for uh, essentially the people that are here, right? Um, in our listening area in Indiana County. You leave you go to the big city, to the big city you, you, of Pittsburgh. You come out of the cornfields and you go, to, you go to where the lights are. Exactly. So you go to the city and uh, these are Michael's words, by the way. Um, you have clubs, women, and cocaine. <laughs> and you have all the money to afford all of the things. Um, But eventually that money's gonna run out and eventually you're gonna find yourself uh, kind of- Empty, broken. Yeah, empty, broken, needing something. And this is essentially what happens in the prodigal son and eventually he actually goes to um, this pig farm kind of and the pigs that he's helping uh, feed and helping raise, um, he is starving so much that he decides that he's going to eat the pig slop. And in this moment is his lowest of low and he decides that he's going to go back to his father. He's going to apologize and repent to his father essentially and tell him that, hey, I'll just be a servant in your house because that's gonna be better than what I've been doing. Um, Even your servants have it better than I did in the pig slop, so just let me please come back as a servant. I don't even have to be reinstated as a son. And um, he makes up his whole speech, he goes back to his house and the scriptures actually say that while he was a long way off, the father saw him and ran towards him. And the son started his speech and the father basically just gave him a ring and a robe and said, get the fattened calf. My son was lost and now he's found and we're gonna celebrate about it and it's gonna be awesome. And he basically just reinstates him as a son. It's like, I've never thought that you weren't a son before. The scriptures don't say that, but that's essentially the story. Yeah, he's not like, um, he's not displaying all of the, wayward behavior of the son yeah he didn't say comes in okay so so put it this way a father uh today um any any kind of human father their probably first reaction would want to be the heck were you thinking Mm -hmm. like are you why are you so of course you're coming back to me yes you can be my son and no you don't have to be a servant but you're an idiot like i told you so Yeah, yeah like why did you do this you're so stupid like and even if they reinstated him as a son there would still be a finger waving what were you thinking? Why did you do this? But that's not how the father reacted. And these are Jesus's words. These are red letters in the Bible. Jesus is tell, is the one telling this story. It's not some random story that was written down a long time ago just to make a point. No, this is Jesus's words. And he's talking about how the father embraces the son and runs when he's a long way off. And as soon as the son, or as soon as the father sees the son, he runs to them it runs to him and embraces him and doesn't berate him and doesn't chastise him in any way, but yet embraces him fully as a son once again. And 
basically says all that I have is yours. Like it's still yours. It's, it's never not been yours. It's still here for you. We're gonna celebrate. It's gonna be a great time. Now, there's also another son who is present. And the son who is present and who stayed with the father got all upset. And he's like, dad, what the heck? I've been here this whole time. I didn't run off with your money. I didn't spend it on clubs, women, and cocaine. But yet, you didn't give me nothing. You didn't give me a fatted calf. And the father says to that son, like, can't you just rejoice? Like, your, your brother was gone. Now he's here. Everything that I've had has been yours this whole time. Why are you complaining, essentially? Like, he doesn't, he doesn't get on to the son who left and came back. He gets on to the son who was always there and yet was complaining. And so, like, this whole story is incredibly countercultural to what people would expect in that day and age and even now. And Jesus is explaining this because he's saying, this is, what, this is how the Father loves people who are lost. Like, he, I came to seek and save those who are lost. And this is a, this is a story that actually um, finishes off <clears throat> three different stories about the lost sheep and, and the lost coin and then the lost son. And Jesus is trying to make this point that I came here to seek out people who are broken, who are hurting and who are lost and to bring them into the kingdom of heaven. And when they notice they are broken and hurting and lost, they are fully open to receive my inheritance, to receive the grace, to receive mercy that is there for them. If they would just come to the father, they would see that all of this love is waiting for them instead of all of this uh, chastisement and it's just a beautiful depiction of the kingdom of heaven. When And then just to say this, that the other son is really kind of the people in the church. Like we talked about people in the church kind of suck. Like that's kind of who he represents is someone who is already in the kingdom of heaven, who is already called. Um, technically he represented the, the, uh, the Jews at this point in time about kind of murmuring, like why are you letting the Gentiles in here? What the heck, Jesus, like this isn't cool. And yet God tells him, or the father tells him like, dude, you have everything that this guy has to chill out. I have plenty of love to go around. I think the best part of that whole story and like the hardest part for me to actually accept is the fact that he didn't make the son claw his way back up. Like, you know what I mean? Like it was immediate reinstatement. It wasn't just like, okay, I'll take you back in, but you have to work to get back to everything feeling okay again. Because I've known that story since I was a kid, but I still have a very, very hard time believing that. I don't have to work my way back. You know what I mean? Like yeah, if you screw up Yeah, it's a picture of the gospel in yeah. that way. And one of the things that's interesting about the father's reception of the son is that he takes the shame of the son onto himself mm -hmm. in that moment because of the way that people look at the father for f willingly accepting the son back in. Mm -hmm. He's not, um, so the difference between the father, if he had, um, if he had made the son go through X, Y, and Z ladder climbing to get back to where he was, or if he had said, I told you so, or if he had said all of these things, these things are motivated by a desire to vindicate oneself and make mm -hmm. oneself appear righteous and correct, mm -hmm. so to speak. Whereas if he just accepts the son back in after this marathon of idiotic behavior, people are going to look at the father like, what is wrong with you? Like, why would you just, you know? And so mm -hmm. he's, in that moment, he's taking the sins and the shame on of himself. the son onto himself. And yeah. so that's one of the things that's cool about that story. I think that's the most, <clears throat> I think that's the most like alarming thing you know, I think that, that's the that whole point. That was the point. chair creaking, by the way. It's happened like three times, right. and I'm like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Michael's not far out of the microphone. So. <laughs> no, but I think that's the most alarming thing about, um, about this whole story and the father's reaction is that 
Jesus set it up in such a way that really this father would be shamed, like by his peers, he would be shamed that you really accepted your son, you didn't make him climb back, you didn't, you actually ran out to him, like, who are you? Like that, look, that makes him look weak. But in all actuality, the father knows like how much he loves his son. And man, you know, you're right, Ashley, like you said about, you know that story, but it's really hard to really let it dig deep down into you. Like and I think, accept it, yeah. yeah, and accept it because this is something I've, I've struggled with for a long time. I used to have a, I used to have a podcast about deconstructing and I, in there, I was just talking about how human beings and the teachings of humans can really screw up your view of God. Mm-hmm. And that's why there was like, there has been this large deconstruction movement. It's not because of the word of God. It's because of the way that people have taught the word of God or they, or we've seen people um, act out on the word. And if you really read this specific, especially this specific story, the way that Jesus is, is, you know, is, uh, is, is telling it, then you cannot help but to think, wow, God's grace is like immaculate. And people who make me personally work back to earn forgiveness, they're not necessarily displaying what the gospel is in that moment. And like, or for ourselves, like yeah. making other people have to claw their way back up into our good graces. You know, exactly. Not just others, I do it too, I'm sure. Yeah, like you can even think now, like you listening to this right now, how many times have you been on either side of that coin? Mm-hmm. Like, have you made people work to earn forgiveness? Even unintentionally, yeah. you know, because we hold things against people, even if we're like, yeah, I forgive you, but there's still, you know, like something held on in our hearts. But the fact that Jesus doesn't do that is hard for me to accept sometimes. I think, I think what people get scared of when they teach this um, and when they get scared of when they teach grace in general mm-hmm. is uh, what Paul kind of talks about in Romans that, well, just because there's a bunch of graces, I mean, we just go on sinning all over, uh, you know, just, all, the more. <laughs> all over the place yeah and he's like by no means that is god's grace when actually tasted properly allows us to not want to we don't even want to deal with anything else like we want to pursue him and to pursue his grace when we see that for what it really is i think one of the problems that we run into um in our flesh is that we lean on the grace we see here on earth from other people instead of the grace that God actually gives us. Mm -hmm. And we're replacing those two things. And so we can't ever lean into God's grace because actually what we're doing, what we're doing is we're leaning on the grace of the people around us. And it's flawed and it's it's not ever going to accomplish. Yeah, it's limited. It's not gonna accomplish like what God's grace is going to accomplish. And so then we continue on sinning and what Paul said, grace is there. And so we understand it in, in this small arena and we don't, we don't accept the grace of God in its fullness. And that's what the prodigal son is showing. The story of the prodigal son, that's what the father is showing in this, is the fullness of the grace of God. Of I'm not gonna make you earn it. I'm not gonna make you work back. You're home and you're gonna stay home and I'm gonna treat you like a king right now. Mm-hmm. The easiest way, I think, to solve the issue of the fear of not taking sin seriously <clears throat> in light of discussions about God's immeasurable grace the way around that is to um, do the best you can to articulate the very real repercussions of sin that you will experience in the present moment and in this life. You, you think about the, the worst sins that you've committed. 
almost certainly either you or someone else is still paying the cost of those sins. And this is exactly how Moses does it in Deuteronomy whenever he's um, laying out the blessing and the curse for the people of Israel for whether or not they obey or defy God. And part of the curse that he lays out, he tells them, if you defy the commandments of God, you know, you're going to be oppressed and your lands are going to be taken and your wives are going to be ravished and your children are going to be uh, kidnapped and you will go mad for the sight of your eyes, which you will see. And so when you think about it, I was reading that last night and I thought, man, to know that we live in a space where it's possible to see things so terrifying that it drives off our sanity, to see things so horrible that it drives off our sanity that's pretty sobering that when you are able to understand that it causes you to, I think it causes you to take sin a lot more seriously. The repercussions of sin can speak for themselves and whether or not the church, uh, puts forth effort to make a person feel punishment for their sin, the spirit of God will do that. Well, I think the church doesn't. So I think what, in this story, and we're gonna have to land here for today, but I think in the prodigal son, the moment of that happening is, the Bible says that the son like came to himself, like he was revealed, oh yeah, crap, I'm really sitting here with pigs, I'm really sitting here eating this food, I've disgraced my dad, what am I doing? Like that terminology, come to himself, like it's a revelation, essentially, of where he's at. It's what we would call rock bottom. You know, he's hit the bottom of the barrel and realized, dang, what am I doing? And because the father, I think, saw that in the son is the reason why I think we see just all the grace from the father because he knows that he doesn't need to tell his son how screwed up he is. Yeah, he didn't shame him into feeling that way. Yeah, the son already felt that way. Mm -hmm. And the father knows the son well enough to know, wow, he's feeling it right now. Like, I don't have to tell him anything. He knows exactly where he's at. And I think that is the beauty of God's grace. And even what you're talking about, like when you hit that bottom point of like seeing the consequences or seeing the pain or whatever, like there's a moment there where God knows that you see that. And that's why he's still fully accepting of you is because he recognizes the the pain that you're carrying already. And so there's no need for him to make you feel more painful, to make you hurt more because he put that shame on his son, Jesus. And so today we're filling in the blank, essentially, and this, this first part has been Jesus's grace. And Jesus is the epitome and the, the, um, the, you know, the, the human flesh of God's grace because he poured out his blood for us. He was bruised for our transgressions or broken for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And he took all the shame of every sin that we would ever commit and took the ultimate consequence of death and then rose again. And because of that, he is displaying God's grace forever and ever and ever through that one act that he, that he did on the cross. Yeah. I think you make a good point about, um, if, so we, we talked a little bit about the, the sinner understanding the ramifications of sin and then the, the seriousness of sin being brought to the fore because of that understanding. And I think it's also a cogent point to say that if the minister or the person um, trying to help out the sinner understands the ramifications of sin, then they know not to pile on. Mm-hmm. Like with, um, you know, 
David and Bathsheba, it's like, yeah, you're, you're, you're going to be essentially forgiven for the sin, but this child's going to die because of what you did. And that's not being erased. Mm-hmm. And so like, we see these, we see absolution, we see justification and sanctification and salvation, but we also see consequence. And it's, uh, and so, but, but I think that the consequence can be our friend in that way. Well, like that's I, a part of God's yeah. grace, allowing you to feel that, to realize, oh yeah, just because God's grace abounds doesn't mean I want to go sinning more. Like his grace allows me to, to have to deal with the consequences here on earth. Yeah, I don't have the, to deal with the ultimate consequence of death. Like that's the ultimate grace is I don't have to deal with like eternal death, but I do have to deal with earthly consequences. Yeah, that's the, that's the, that's the reason for the exclamation point after Paul's by no means. By no means. <laughs> He's like, are you kidding me? No, absolutely not. Do you know what's going to happen to you if you keep? And so, uh, yeah, I think all of that's pretty interesting. And it is interesting to know that understanding the consequences is pivotal and is key to understanding God's grace. And that, that actually is the solution to the cheap grace problem that the church suffers with a lot. And, um, so churches probably can get the grace issue right more often if they spend more time understanding as clearly as possible and as accurately as possible, the immediate consequences that a person deals with because of sin. I think that that's probably a good step forward. And yeah, even for let's give listening, they, they let's give grace that. the same way that the father gave grace in the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. The other son wanted to pile on. Don't do that. Jesus is like, nah. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. So Jesus's grace. That's week one. Way to go, Michael. I'm proud of you. You did a great job. You did it. I think it was excellent. You really? <laughs> you, if I were to rate it, I'd give it five stars. Put, I would just say you got in a car wreck, um, and your car was totaled, but then the insurance came in. And then you got a much better car. And then you drove that car nice and safely to the destination that you need to get to. Yeah, I drive a Prius though, so the insurance company probably wouldn't cover it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, okay. uh, On that note, everybody knows you drive a Prius now. Yes, we've landed the plane (laughs) and it's time to get your bags out of the overhead and line up and unload and okay. get to the airport. Okay. We'll see you guys you later. Uh, go bye. On forever. <laughs> bye everybody.